Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Medisodes. In this week's episode, we're going to be looking at anesthesia. It's an important step in a lot of surgeries worldwide, but how much do people actually know what happens when they fall asleep? And how does this work? In today's episode, we'll cover all that and more. And first up, we'll start with Adrian, who's going to be talking about why we have anesthesia. So, as Anupam mentioned, I'll begin by discussing what anesthesia is and then go through the purpose. Anesthesia is a medical treatment that keeps patients from feeling pain during procedures and surgery, and the name given to the medications given as part of this are called anesthetics. There are different types of anesthetics that work in different ways and are used for different purposes, and Surya will go through these types of anesthesia later on in the episode. Anesthesia temporarily blocks pain signals reaching nerve centres in the brain. They are used in a wide variety of procedures, ranging from tooth extraction to open surgery. Within medicine, the patient's quality of care is very important, and one of the NHS constitutional values. A key part of this is making sure that the patient is as comfortable as possible throughout their treatment, and this involves reducing pain as much as possible. Anesthesia allows for procedures to be painless, and as such, improving the quality of care. Another benefit of using anaesthetics is that they reduce a patient's unwillingness to consent to a medical procedure. If medical procedures were painful, patients are more likely to not consent to them, especially in non-life-threatening scenarios. The main issue with this is that, if left untreated, the health of these patients will further deteriorate and might lead to situations that require riskier and more painful procedures which is something we want to avoid by treating earlier on in the course of disease. A key medical ethic is doing the best for a patient, and as such, introducing anaesthetics, and thus making procedures less intimidating, will allow for more patients to be treated earlier on in the course of illness. That's the main purpose of anaesthesia, alleviating pain to make patients more comfortable during procedures and to make them less intimidated when consenting. Before anaesthesia, a patient should make sure that their doctor has a current list of all medications and supplements that they are taking, so that anaesthetic can be checked for potential conflicts and unwanted reactions. The patient should avoid food and drink for at least 8 hours before going to hospital, quit smoking for at least 24 hours, and stop taking herbal supplements for at least one week before the procedure. The doctor will also give the patient instructions for what to do after the procedure, with regards to anaesthetic and steps going forward to make sure that the patient isn't put at any risk. I'll now hand over to Shrey, who will discuss the history of anaesthesia and where we have come from. Anaesthesia has been incredibly important in the history of medicine and especially the history of surgery, because without anaesthesia, operations are a completely different uh, environment. So before we had effective anaesthetics operations were often extremely brutal and painful and patients were literally strapped to the table to make sure they didn't writhe about many died from shock and that was why surgery was so dangerous in before the enlightenment before these new anaesthetics were developed pre-anaesthetic Surgery was all about speed. Some surgeons were so quick they could amputate a leg in less than three minutes. And there was also another reason for this. Infection. At this time, uh, there was no understanding of what caused disease. 
And there was also very limited ways that they could prevent infection. So it was important that the operation was done quickly to make sure that the, basically the survival rate was maximized. There were some um, uh, substances used for pain and to abate pain. So there was obviously alcohol was just a common one used to basically make the patient drunk so that they just felt less pain. There was also uh, plants and with, they might not have known it at the time, but the active ingredients within these plants was basically opium. So that also caused like you to become very drowsy and basically it made the surgery much less painful. There was also some more um, wacky ideas, for example, hypnosis um, to stop the patient feeling any pain and also just knockout blows to the head, which is probably not the best thing to do to a patient. But by far the most common was something, uh, especially in, just before the enlightenment, was laudanum. And laudanum is basically 90% alcohol and 10% opium. And it basically puts you to sleep. But obviously that comes with a lot of danger because these alcohol and opium are very dangerous substances. So that's why as the, in the Enlightenment, uh, they were, uh, doctors and surgeons were looking for new ways to make patients feel less pain. So the famed chemist Humphrey Davies investigated nitrous oxide and that's more commonly known today as laughing gas. And as the name suggests, it causes you, activates the laughing, like the laughing reflex in your brain. However, Humphrey's advice to use this was not really heeded until much later. There was also ether, which was first tested in America in the, around 1850, and then brought to the UK by Robert Liston. However, the problem with this was it was incredibly flammable and it causes damage to the lungs, both of which are not very good if you're breathing this in. There was also Jon Snow. So you might be familiar with Jon Snow from our episode about public health. He was one of the first doctors to specialise in anaesthesia. And he used the work of J James Simpson, who developed, who you realised that chloroform could be a long-lasting and reliable anaesthetic, and he saw this. In, he discovered this in 1847, and then John Snow started using chloroform in 1853 and 1857, um, and he actually used this on Queen Victoria during the birth of her two, two of her children, Prince Leopold and P Princess Beatrice, and that gave chloroform a lot of validity and uh, like the royal stamp of approval, and that made it. Uh, that changed the perception around these anaesthetics. If if the queen could have it, then it was good enough for everybody. However, there were some problems that were experienced from this. For example, there was very little knowledge about the dosage that was supposed to be used, and that could cause terrible consequences. For example, a 15-year-old girl called Hannah Greener went in to have her toenail removed. She effectively overdosed on anaesthetics. She ended up dying. And this is clearly one of the things that very many people are scared of, was the fact that they'd never wake up again when they were put to sleep. There was also opposition from religious leaders, especially around the use of anaesthetics during childbirth, because they believed that 
for some reason, pain was God's punishment to humans and that it sh- doctors shouldn't try and block it. Also, this same attitude was expressed by some doctors, which is completely against modern medical ethics, but they felt like their patients should appreciate what they were doing for them and be able to see what was going on. As I mentioned before, there wasn't very um, effective antiseptics. And because of that, actually after the development of anaesthetics, we entered the black period of surgery. And this was a 20-year period where surgery actually became more dangerous. And that's because anaesthetics allowed doctors to have more invasive, longer surgeries. However, without antiseptics, this increased the chances of infection and therefore you dying from um, sepsis or something like that. Substances that are considered illegal, especially stuff like opioids or ketamines, actually were invented to be anaesthetics. So that's quite an interesting dynamic to have that. It goes back to the laudanum and I hope you've enjoyed this uh, dive through the history of anaesthetics and you've learned a bit more about that and you appreciate the game-changing role anaesthetics had in surgery. So now that we've explored the role of anaesthetics in history and its importance in the development of surgery, let's move on to Shri, who's going to be talking about the types of anaesthetics that are used today. There are three main types of anaesthesia. General anaesthesia, local anaesthesia, and regional anaesthesia. First, let's look at general anaesthesia. General anaesthesia is a state of controlled unconsciousness during which you feel nothing. You will have no memory of what happens while you are anaesthetized. A general anaesthetic is required for a wide range of operations. This includes most major operations on the heart, lungs, or in the abdomen, and many operations on the brain or the major arteries. Anesthetic drugs are injected into a vein or anesthetic gases are given to you to breathe. These drugs stop the brain from responding to sensory messages traveling from nerves in the body. Anesthetic unconsciousness is different from a natural sleep. You cannot be woken from an anesthetic until the drugs are stopped and their effects wear off. While you are unconscious, the team in theater look after you with great care. Your anaesthetic stays near you, near to you all the time. Local, a local anaesthetic numbs a p- small part of the body where you are having the operation. It is used when nerves can be easily reached by drops, sprays, ointments or injections. You stay conscious but, feel, but free from pain. Common examples of surgery using local anaesthetic are having teeth removed and some common operations on the eye. Now let's look at regional anesthesia. This is when a local anesthetic drug is injected near to the nerves that supply a larger or deeper area of the body. The area of the body affected becomes numb. Spinal and epidural anesthesia are the most common types of regional anesthetics. These injections can be used for operations on the lower body such as bladder operations or hip replacement. You can stay conscious but free from pain. Now let's look at other types of regional anesthesia. Other types of regional anesthetics involve an injection placed near to 
a nerve or group of nerves, for example in the arm or leg. This is often called a nerve block and can allow you to have the operation without a general anaesthetic. Nerve blocks are also useful for pain relief after the operation as the area will stay numb for a number of hours. Anaesthetic techniques can often be used together. For example, regional anaesthetic may be given for pain relief after an operation for which you have had a general anaesthetic. The general anaesthetic allows you to remain unconscious and remember nothing. So hopefully you have gained a good insight into the main types of anaesthesia. So we've talked about a lot about anaesthesia so far and the actual chemicals used, but let's talk more about the doctors who perform anaesthesia. Anaesthetists, or anaesthesiologists as they're known around the world, in the UK it's only used as anaesthetists, but they are doctors who have specialist training responsible for providing the anaesthetic and looking after you before, during and after surgery. Anaesthetists also have the roles of discussing the types of anaesthesia that are suitable for the operation, assessing your fitness for surgery, discussing risks of the operation helping you prepare, and they also agree a plan with you for your pain control. They'll follow this up by looking after you in the recovery room as well. In the United Kingdom, they number over 22,500, and anaesthetists, critical care and pain medicine doctors represent the single largest medical specialty. They provide 24-7 care for two-thirds of all patients entering hospitals. To become an anaesthetist, medical students study for five years in both university and hospital, and then graduate as doctors with a full medical degree. These doctors will all then have a further two years of foundation stage training in a range of specialties, giving them a wide base and allowing them to find out the areas of work that they're interested in. Doctors who wish to train in anaesthesia apply to go on to a training program, which lasts seven more years to become a consultant level anaesthetist. At first, a new anaesthetist works with a consultant by their side all the time. As a trainee passes capability assessments and gains experience, the level of supervision also gets reduced. Anaesthetists in the UK need to complete all the required standards set by the Royal College of Anaesthetists and need to pass a demanding two-part exam called the Fellowship of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, or FRCA, before they can continue to the last stage of their training. So once they become junior doctors after their five years of medical school, they'll go into FY1 and FY2 foundation year training. And these are people who have introductory training in anaesthesia. Following that, once they've decided they want anaesthesia as their specialty, they'll have three years of core training, CT1, 2 and 3, which are the early basic training years in anaesthetics. This is followed by specialty training years, SD4, 5, 6 and 7. The number is the training year which they're in, and this training covers all the specialist training they'll need to become fully-fledged consultant anaesthetists. There are different grades of anaesthetists. Consultant anaesthetists have completed all the training requirements in anaesthesia to allow them to be on the specialist register of the GMC, or General Medical Council. They work without any senior supervision, but still must continue professional development every year. They usually specialise in a particular area of anaesthesia, and some may lead teams in different areas of the hospital, such as intensive care and pain medicine. SAS doctors. This group of anaesthetists have different levels of experience and may be called either staff grade, fellow, associate specialist, or specialist doctor. And in some trusts, they may be called by another different title. SAS doctors have at least two years of the specialty training in anaesthesia, but many will have had far longer. A few will have completed all the training and will be on the specialist register, 
and many are very experienced anaesthetists. But for various reasons, these SAS doctors have all made the choice not to complete the higher specialty areas of training and research in order to become a consultant. Depending on their skills and experience, these doctors may work alone, but can ask for advice or assistance if required. There are also locum anaesthetists, which are anaesthetists of any grade that are temporarily working to cover a position, and then professors, lecturers and readers, who are anaesthetists who work within medical universities as well as in clinical anaesthesia, helping train the next generation of anaesthetists. So hopefully this episode has let you know a lot more about the world of anaesthesia and what happens when patients are put to sleep during their surgeries. Hopefully this also means when you go to have a surgery, you'll know a lot more and feel a lot safer in the doctor's hands. Thank you for watching today's episode, and if you enjoyed it, please make to like, share and subscribe, and make sure you send it to all of your friends and family. As always, we upload videos every Friday, so be sure to stay tuned for next week's video.